Steel Profiles podcast is brought to you by AISC Continuing Education. Visit AISC.org seminars to find a seminar in a city near you. Welcome to another episode of Steel Profiles. I'm your host, Margaret Matthew, Senior Engineer in the Continuing Education Department at AISC. My guest today is James O'Malley, SAPE of Dagen Kolb Engineers in San Francisco, California. Jim earned his bachelor's and master's of science degrees at the University of California, Berkeley, before taking a position at Dagen Kolb Engineers, where he is currently a senior principal and vice president of engineering operations. Jim has almost 30 years of experience in structural design, seismic evaluation, and seismic strengthening of existing buildings, and is a recognized national expert in steel frame design. His projects include a variety of healthcare facilities and several research efforts funded by institutions like FEMA and the National Science Foundation. Jim serves on the AISC Specification Committee, where he chairs TC9 on seismic provisions and is also on the Seismic Manual Committee. Jim is also president of the National Council of Structural Engineers Association, as well as serving on ASCE's Committee on Design of Steel Building Structures and the Committee on Seismic Effects. Jim was the recipient of the prestigious AISC T.R. Higgins Lectureship Award in 2010, and this year was awarded AISC's Lifetime Achievement Award. Welcome, Jim. Thank you so much for agreeing to take time out of your NASCC schedule to talk to me today. Great, Margaret. Thanks. It's a real honor to be able to do this today. Oh, thank you. That's always so nice to hear. You attended the University of California at Berkeley for both your bachelor's and master's degrees. What was your experience there like? You know, it was really outstanding. I was there in the late 70s, and so kind of after the, the tumult of uh, the 60s and, and the Vietnam War, et cetera. So it was, it was a great time to be at Berkeley and, and uh, a really great experience for me overall. It's something that was very important in my life. Did you always have that interest in seismic design? You know, not really, to tell you the truth. I actually uh, went to Berkeley as, as an engineering student, started in mechanical engineering, oh. and, and then, yeah. Uh, How long did it take you to realize there are your ways? <laughs> <laughs> I, I realized, uh, I thought to myself, gee, you know, you really don't have much of an interest in fiddling around with cars or mechanical stuff. Why would you go into mechanical engineering? <laughs> but uh, so I started into then civil engineering, and then my advisor was a structural engineering professor, and he, he said, well, you maybe you should think about structural, and then kind of just worked its way towards seismic design, which if you stay at Berkeley and go to grad school, a lot of the work is, is related to seismic design. Sure, sure. You were one of Igor Popov's favorites, and in fact he handpicked you as his successor to chair the AISC Seismic Design Task Committee. What was Igor like as a professor and then as a colleague? He was outstanding, yeah. It was, uh, again, you know, I think of people in my life who really made a difference and you know, I think everybody has maybe half a dozen people that really kind of help guide them and change their lives. And Professor Popov was certainly one of those people for me. He was an outstanding teacher in the classroom, always energetic and enthusiastic and had a great sense of humor and a really good, a good teacher. And then when I was lucky enough to start working with him on this research program, that was just like the opportunity of a lifetime for a young student. And you know, on top of that, he uh, introduced me to uh, my, the company that I'm with now. He, he mm. found me, he got me a summer job uh, one year while I was at Berkeley as I was finishing up my degree. And so, you know, as a result, I'm still with Degenkolb Engineers today, 29 years later. Is that the only firm you've ever worked yeah, for? Yeah. Oh, so, I didn't know that. Yeah, That's yeah. Only, That's unusual. Yeah, it That's is. Rare. Certainly today it is. And yeah, and, uh, yeah I'm a lifer is what, what I call it. So, <laughs> uh, But, uh, you know, and he was actually very important in that. He then kind of spurred me to, to continue on with the AISC work, and that's, you know, been a great opportunity for me as well. 
I never really thought of him as a colleague. He was always <laughs> Professor Popoff to me, even you know, till the very end. You know, one of my favorite stories about him was after I had been the chair for, of the committee for a number of years. He became ill. I guess he was about 89 years old and still very active on the committee. And uh, I went and visited him in the hospital, and we were, we were just he had missed one of our committee meetings because he was sick. About a, a week later, I went and visited him again after the meeting, and he said. Oh, I'm sorry I missed the meeting. I, I know I had a couple of assignments to do, and I'll make sure I take care of them. And I said, don't worry about it. And this, this was two weeks before he passed away. Oh. And so he just, he really loved what he did. Dedicated. and loved all of his work for AISC. So he was a great guy. Wow, to be thinking about that yeah. right up until the end. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, there's, there's not very many people like him. You've been on many reconnaissance teams that have gone in after major earthquakes around the world. What's your purpose when you're part of one of these teams and, and who typically sends you to these places? Purpose-wise, generally it's really to learn about how buildings perform and many people go and look at the ones that fail, mm -hmm. that collapse or have major damage and those are certainly interesting. But our company, and, and a lot of times my, my company actually sends a team of our own engineers. Uh, we try and send our, you know, one of our, two of our most senior people and then kind of all the, all the different levels of people and experience levels during, in the company so that they can learn from the people that have been to uh, earthquakes before about what to look for and what they're seeing and things like that. But we also focus on the buildings that do well and mm -hmm. why do they do well because we can bring a lot of that information back to our own practice. And our business, we do a lot of work on older buildings and try and seismically retrofit them to, mm -hmm. to be more safe in an earthquake. And that's something that we can really learn from out in the field. The other organizations that send teams are uh, EERI, the Earthquake Engineering Research Institute. Mm -hmm. And I've been on a couple of teams that they've sent as well. And those are really great opportunities because they don't just have structural engineers, but they have all the different disciplines. Mm -hmm. So they have social science people looking at recovery and response, and they have geotechnical engineers and uh, all the different disciplines of engineering to, to look at it. So to look at the holistic picture, not just the, not just the buildings. Mm -hmm. Uh, have you ever felt like you've been in danger when you've gone to any of these uh, A couple sites? of times, actually. The, once when I was in Turkey, in Erzincan, Turkey, in 1992, I was in a damaged hospital. Actually, I, I, it was in the middle of this hospital, and I, I remembered Bob Hansen, who is a pretty well-known uh, professor from the University of Michigan who's retired now, but he, Bob probably did more earthquake chasing than just about anyone else. And I remember him... He had a piece of advice that you should, no matter where you were in a damaged building, you should always know two ways to get out mm -hmm. if there was an aftershock. And I, I was in the middle of this building and I looked around and it was hundreds of feet if something's happened and I thought, okay, I better, better be a little more careful. And then uh, the other one that I think of is um, in, after the 1994 Northridge earthquake, I was at the VA hospital in Sepulveda, which is very close to the epicenter. We spent most of the week there uh, looking at all their buildings after the earthquake and one of the most heavily damaged buildings was the boiler plant. Earthquake hit on Monday. We basically closed that building on Tuesday because of the damage. And on Friday, uh, we were on that part of the, of the site and there was an aftershock. It was a pretty good size aftershock. And, and I was with the uh, president of our company, Chris Poland. So the aftershock hit and we said, oh, we, you know, let's go over to the boiler plant and see how much worse the damage got. As we looked over when the aftershock hit, we saw that there was, a, there was one worker in the building who was making sure the boilers were still running for the plant. And so we said, you know, you could go in there every once in a while to check the gauges and make sure everything was okay. So when that first aftershock hit, he ran out of the building 
because he knew it wasn't very safe. Yeah. And so, so we walked in, looked around, and then a bigger aftershock hit while we were in the building. So then we had to sprint out of the building, and I, th I was thinking to myself, oh no, I'm going to get killed in a building that I condemned. <laughs> <laughs> so luckily it didn't but collapse. Apparently you made it out. No, yes. <laughs> but you do have to be careful, and it's something that you really have to keep your eyes open all the time. Yeah. What color was your hair on January 16th, 1994? <laughs> uh, well, I think Charlie Carter seated this question. Uh, you would be correct. Uh, yeah. Uh, it was definitely not the same color it is now, which is very gray, but uh, it was dark brown. You know, it does run in my family, so I'm not going to blame uh, Northridge Earthquake and every, all the work that we did afterward on it, but uh, it probably didn't. Uh, it may have sped it along a little bit toward, <laughs> toward its present color. So, so yes, yeah, speaking of the Northridge Earthquake, uh, you were very involved after that 1994 earthquake with damage assessment and also with research into the problems that were revealed with steel moment frame connections. What do you think was the most important thing that we learned from Northridge? Yeah, there were a lot of things actually. Um, and I think probably the most important thing is to never think that you really know what's going to happen in an earthquake and, and to, to think that you got it solved. Yeah. Because if you would have asked just about any engineer that did a lot of seismic design in steel prior to the earthquake what would would have been the best performing building it would have been those moment frames really and you know in retrospect probably did some things we shouldn't have done um, a lot of the testing that was used to build the the design provisions at the time were um, based on smaller scale tests than actually were going into buildings so there was a big extrapolation from what the code provisions were based on as to what was being used in the field. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the things that we've really shied away, or we've really changed since then, is that if you're going to change the code provisions, you need testing that is commensurate with the size of things that you're actually going to see in the, in the field. Mm -hmm. And I think that's changed a lot. And I also think that we saw how important it is not just to have good design, but to have good materials, good inspection, good construction, good uh, quality control, all the things that go into making a building in a steel structure um, sound have to be in place in order to really do well in an earthquake. Mm -hmm. You've been involved in many of the ATC documents. What are ATC publications and how did you get involved with that? So ATC is the Applied Technology Council and it was formed back in the 70s by the Structural Engineers Association of California as sort of a quasi-research um, technology transfer organization. And their intent really is to take research results and turn them into information that can be used easily by practicing structural engineers. Mm -hmm. And I was lucky enough, back in 1984, our company was selected to do a project called ATC-14. And I was the engineer that was assigned to that, so I worked on it for almost two years. And what we did was the, really the first document that was developed to look at the seismic evaluation of existing buildings mm -hmm. in, a, in a very comprehensive and cohesive way. Prior to that, engineers kind of followed new building design provisions, and some used different rules, and, it, and there was no real consistency in the practice on that. What this document set up was actually the first in a series of documents that now has led to FEMA documents and then now ASCE has published standards that sort of, this is sort of the great grandfather of what is being used today as a okay. standard for uh, seismic evaluation and seismic retrofit of existing buildings. So that's, that was my introduction to ATC. And you've done how many of the documents? I've probably worked on four or five. Yeah. Uh, that was the most, that was the biggest one. Most recent 
recently I, I led a group that developed by ETC that led uh, the development of a research program that might lead to some additional testing on steel columns that, that NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, is hoping to get funded in the next few years. So that was just four or five months ago that we oh, worked okay. on that. So it sounds like you've been involved in some way with just about every major seismic code and standard that we have in this country. What do you think about the progress on seismic design and how it's codified? Do you think we've come far enough and that what we currently have in place is as good as it gets? Or do you still see a lot of room for improvement? Well, I haven't been involved in every seismic code. <laughs> <laughs> a lot uh, of them. Uh, yeah, certainly a number <laughs> of them. And certainly people from my firm have, so I can get information from them about the ones that I'm not directly involved with. You know, we've really come a long way. And I think AISC especially has been a leader in that. We've really forced engineers to change their thinking away from elastic design into inelastic design and plastic uh, procedures and, and how the building's really going to respond in an earthquake and mm -hmm. what we call now capacity design. And so I think we've really pushed that forward and the rest of the industry has sort of followed that. I also think ASCE 7 has made great strides forward in improving the provisions and making them workable. One of the things that concerns me and a number of others people is that uh, we tend to try and write the building code to cover 99 and 44 one hundredths percent of the buildings that get designed in the, in the world. Mm -hmm. If you look out at the, you know, the signature types of buildings, they don't really fit very well into codified standards and mm -hmm. procedures. You know, in some ways, I think the rules are trying to cover those kind of buildings too, and they're so complex for the run-of-the-mill standard buildings that it, it may not be leading to the best design practices. So there's a move afoot by some, some folks to maybe simplify the code itself and require that for those that very special class of buildings, maybe it's only 5% of the buildings, that they have another procedure, a performance-based design procedure that would uh, require peer review and, and a whole different type of permitting process than the, the standard building. Mm -hmm. And I think in the end, that would probably end up with a better set of buildings and construction in the future. And simpler. Yeah, for 95% of the buildings. And I think that probably makes sense because a lot of the things that people have to check now don't really matter for the, most of the buildings that get designed. For a small class of buildings, they do. But you know, we are going to continue to tinker with it, I, you know, <laughs> with the code and the procedures. I don't think we'll ever be done because every earthquake teaches us new lessons. Yeah. And so that's something that, you know, I hope there's no real big lessons in steel in the future. I hope we've kind of gotten it in the right direction. But certainly the research that goes on and uh, the lessons that we learn from new earthquakes that happen all the time are, are going to help us to continue to improve the provisions. That leads me to my next question. Uh, what advances do you predict for seismic design and construction in the next 15 years? I think the trend for us to do per, what we call performance-based earthquake engineering is going to continue. Mm -hmm. And this will allow us to better predict uh, how buildings will perform. Today, the building code really sets a bar that you have to jump over or cross the line in the sand. You either meet the code or you don't meet the code. It's not very clear as to what that means as far as how the building is going to perform. Mm -hmm. One of the other things we find is that a lot of owners now are just, basic intent of the building code is that it'll be after a major earthquake that everyone could exit the building safely, no one will get hurt. It doesn't uh, guarantee that the building will remain in operation after the earthquake and, or that you can you know, continue to use it, or even that it could be repairable and used again. Mm -hmm. um, it might have to be torn down. So that's the basic intent of the building code. Many owners now don't think that's acceptable for various reasons, business interruption and things like that. So they're interested in a higher performing set of buildings and we're coming up with new ideas about ways to make that happen
happen and to really be able to understand how to design to make that happen. And new technologies that are coming forward to recenter buildings. So if they want to move over after the earthquake, there's a mechanism to pull them back up so they're vertical mm -hmm. after the earthquake. And so things like that are, are pretty unique. And obviously the, the world of, of computers and our ability to analyze things that we could never have analyzed before uh, is continues to increase and improve our ability to really understand performance. So it's a lot of exciting things going to be coming in mm -hmm. the next 15 years or so. What do you think is the greatest innovation in seismic design that you've already seen in your career? You know, there are a number, obviously, that I think are great. I, you think of uh, adding uh, specific damping to buildings to lessen the amount of movement. Probably, though, the, the biggest innovation is called base isolation. Mm -hmm. And it's the idea of uh, putting the building columns at the base of, usually generally the base of the building, on a set of isolators that when the ground wants to shake under the building, the isolation elements take all the movement of the building with or almost all the movement with them and don't transfer very much movement or force up into the building so the isolator moves with the with the ground and the building sort of stays put it can really provide that high level of performance it gets widely used on very important buildings in the post earthquake scenario like hospitals, hospitals fire stations police stations and then it's also another use is museums which oh. and, and wonder why museums and the reason is the contents in that building can be hundreds and thousands of times as expensive and fragile and they're very fragile mm -hmm. as the building itself so by putting the isolation under the building the violence of the shaking or the severity of the shaking is so much less that it's much easier to protect the, the artwork from being damaged so that's a many museums in high seismic zones are, are base isolated so that'd be a great place to be during earthquake yeah, sure would. Yeah, if you if you're near a museum, run inside. <laughs> Dagan Kolb, which is where you work, is often in the list of best places to work. So as a leader there, um, you help to maintain that atmosphere. How do you how do you do that? It's something that's been handed down for many years. The company is over seven years old now. Uh, Mr. Dagan Kolb, who passed away in 1989, actually really instilled in the company uh, that desire to be sort of a, at the forefront of structural engineering and a culture of learning and giving people opportunities to continue to progress and grow in their career and we've carried that on. Uh, one of the sort of promises that we make to our staff as engineers is that if you go through the process and do all the learning and develop clients and, and the like that we'll bring you on as a part, one of the partners of the firm and that's yeah. and that's how the, the firm grows really from internally. We've never acquired another firm or picked up people from outside firms very often. It's really people that have, like myself, that started out of graduate school and then kind of built, worked our way up through the, through the business. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I started with the firm, there were six principals and about 25 people. And now we're 32 principals and 175 people. Wow. So it's, uh, it's worked for us. And, yeah. you know, certainly the culture has changed, but that, that fundamental piece about the, the learning and the growth within and passing on the, the leadership and ownership in the company in terms is, is something that we're proud of. Yeah, and it must be working. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, we have our moments, but, uh, <laughs> like everybody else, but we certainly have that as, as a key thing of all of our strategic thinking and planning for the future. Is, I think it all kind of comes from that core concept of kind of the growth internally of our people mm -hmm. and giving them opportunities for professional growth and development. Mm -hmm. Like you, many of the Dagan Cole people are involved with activities with AISC and similar organizations. How is a company like Dagan Cole able to support these activities that could be looked at as taking you away from your 
billable time. It does, but many of us do it sort of beyond the, the usual work week. Mm -hmm. It's something that, uh, as I mentioned before, is really an important part of our culture and something that we value. Uh, we think we get a lot of value out of it. I always think about how much more I learn at, at meetings like this than I teach other people or tell other people. And I think that it gives us an opportunity to do unique projects and to be involved in sort of cutting edge technology or, or uh, parts of the profession that we wouldn't have the opportunity to do if we weren't involved in sort of the professional side of the, of the business. So it's again, it's a very important part of our culture that we foster and, and uh, fund and, and think is really important to our future. Well, AISE always appreciates that. Well, AISE's been great to me and, and everybody else in our firm too, so I, re I appreciate it as well. So we're conducting this interview at the North American Steel Construction Conference in Dallas, Texas. I hear that you rarely miss one. Mm -hmm. So how many NASCCs does this make for you? You know, I believe the first one I came to was 1987, and I think I've missed two, because, and both times it was because my son's uh, spring break week was the same week as the conference. Mm -hmm. To stay married, <laughs> I, uh, I chose, <laughs> Had to, make that I chose to, uh, to our family vacation over the conference. That was probably a good choice. Yeah, although I'll, I have to admit, one year the conference was in Baltimore, and our family vacation was to Washington, D.C. And we actually spent a day, we drove up to Baltimore for a day, to, to, and I, I thought to myself, hmm, maybe I could just sneak over to the conference for a few hours, and, and I, but I never, I never suggested that to my wife. I probably would have gotten a nasty look. But, uh, but that's, uh, yeah, so it's, it's one I, I definitely don't want to miss. I think that they do, they do a great job. Do you have a favorite? You know what? Uh, I really, I really can't think of one to tell you the truth. Um, I, th I, I think they're all great. I think that every year they improve. There's new, new ideas and new mm -hmm. things that come forward. So I really think it's the best run and organized and, and most effective conference that I go to in a year. So that's why I really never miss them. I do think back to a, f a couple of the ones in San Antonio that I really enjoyed. Maybe it was because of the Riverwalk and sort of the after, uh, the after hour activities. But all the conferences are great, and I get a lot out of every one of them. They are a lot of fun. So I'll put a plug in now if you've never been to NASCC. Next year it's going to be in St. Louis, Missouri, which is where I live. So anybody that's thinking about coming, look into it next year. I would definitely agree. <laughs> so speaking of your work with AISC, um, you've been chair of the TC9 committee for more than 15 years, which is responsible for writing our seismic provisions. So how many different provisions have been issued while you've been at the helm? Well, let me think now. So uh, I took over in 95. So 97 was the first one, and that was a major one. And that was the first one after the Northridge earthquake, so that was a big change. Oh, yeah. And then we did additional supplements, we called them in 99 and 2000, when we learned more information that was kind of coming out. So we were really trying to keep the profession abreast of what we were learning as, as fast as we could. We, mm -hmm. we didn't want to wait for three and five year cycles because we felt that we needed to get that information out to the practice. And then another major one was in 2002, which was sort of a, a total revamp to pick up the supplements plus new information. And that was sort of the one where we had completed the FEMAS Act project after the Northridge earthquake, um, which was from 90, late 94 all the way till 2000 that we worked through those documents. So 2002, we got all that into the AISC provisions. And then 2005 was another major one. And that was a big one in that we went to the dual specification mm -hmm. where we cover both allowable strength design and LRFD in the same specification. Uh, same as the, the main spec. And then 2010, we just completed a year, year and a half ago, which is the, the one that's in place now that hopefully engineers are, are using on all their seismic designs. So what is that? One, two, three, four, five? 
six, six different ones. Uh, we're That's slowing the pace down. If, if don't want to, <laughs> I don't want people to be scared about that because uh, we recognize that making changes too fast, engineers don't like. As soon as they get used to one code, it changes. Mm -hmm. So AISC, I think, is doing the right thing now by going to sort of a six-year cycle for mm -hmm. our changes. So the next edition of the provisions won't come out until 2016, and it really won't be adopted by the building code, the IBC, until 2018. The engineers can breathe easy. They can use the document <laughs> now for another six years or so, hopefully get, uh, get real, real used, used to it. And as we're looking at, we are working on the next edition though right, already. I'm not sensing that we're going to make any wholesale or major changes the oh, next good. time. It's, again, this kind of tweaking and tinkering part, new information and making things easier to use when we get feedback. And I'll put in a plug for those of you who are out there listening. If you are struggling with parts of the provisions that you don't feel comfortable with or un think you understand, send in an email an email to the Solutions Center at AISC and ask your questions. And I can almost guarantee if it's about seismic, it'll end up on my email <laughs> box, which is great, because then we know where to focus and, and make changes that'll make it easier for the, the practice to work with. So. Yeah. So yeah, that's what we're that's where we're at. So you said that 2010 seismic provisions are in place, mm -hmm. and I've been told I haven't actually used them myself, but <laughs> that they have a lot of changes mm -hmm. from the 2005 provisions. What was the driving force behind that so much change? And actually, the 2010 provisions, from a technical perspective, was not a huge change. 2005 was a really big change. 2010, the biggest change was really in format and oh, okay. how an organization. We tried to make every system that's identified in the a different structural system that's identified in the provisions uh, very consistently organized so that you could more easily compare the rules for designing say there's four or five different braced frame uh, systems that you can use and now you can compare across those very easily to see the differences and hopefully make informed decisions about what system to use on your project more easily so that was one of the big changes the format issue the, on the technical side I, th I mentioned before that we really have been pushing this capacity-based design approach this the 2010 provision is where we sort of completed that process for the last of the systems that still prior to that you could design using sort of the elastic provisions that kind of date back to the 1950s. So it was sort of the last bastion of the old approach and we were able to, to make that change which I definitely think is important because now all the systems can be designed in a similar fashion with a similar mindset. The other thing that we were able to do was actually the document's smaller now than it was in 2005 for the first time. Wow. Although if That the, rarely happens. Yeah. Those of you that <laughs> That, uh, that know me, I, I usually joke that my goal has been to make the seismic provisions thicker than the main specification. <laughs> we got close, but it, the main spec's still a little thicker than, than our seismic provisions. But this time it actually got a little smaller because AWS uh, came out with a set of welding requirements for seismic, specifically for seismic design. Mm -hmm. And that was the first time they had come out with that. And I think that was in 2006. So it was just after the 2005 edition of our provisions. And a lot of information that we had on weld seismic welding in 2005 got taken care of by AWS in 2010. So we were able to pull that out and refer to the AWS document. So engineers now that are working with the seismic provisions also need to have access to that AWS uh, D1.8, it's called, which is the seismic supplement to the D1.1 welding code. I do think it's going to be a document that's easier for people to understand how to work with the systems. And, mm -hmm. and I think the organization is going to make it more straightforward and
and clear cut as to how to go through the process. Now, are you also on the Seismic Manual Committee? I am. Yeah, yes. not in the lead role on that. Rafael Sabelli is doing a great job on that. That document is really improved and changed over the ed previous edition. It now has many more examples for different systems. We've included a whole new chapter on composite design, which I think is a big improvement. And I also think that a lot of the examples are much more detailed, a lot more explanation. And so I think that document and that book is really going to be something that every engineer who practices seismic design and does a lot of steel design is going to want to have on their on their bookshelf because there's a lot of really great information in there. I know our we're going to be buying one of those for pretty much every engineer in our company. You're working on the second edition right now. Right, second edition. We're in the final throes of doing the review of the, of the examples and, and getting it. It's being typeset and then we get a, a look at the typeset chapters and things like that. So I believe the schedule for publication is late this year. Yes, by the end of the year. Yeah. Yeah, so we're that, hoping that's a, a huge effort and, and I think a very beneficial one to the industry. And since I am in the continuing education department, I will put a plug out now that as soon as it's done, well actually right now we're actually writing the, the seminar okay. on it, mm -hmm. on the provision and the manual. So so that'll be debuting next spring at NASCC. Oh really? Okay, yes. great. I supposed didn't know that. to. Good. <laughs> Good. Well, that's the plan. I'm sure it'll be a great seminar because the, the committee that's working on it are a very dedicated group, like all AISC groups, and they've, they've really worked hard to, to, to make that manual as good as it can be. Yeah. And, and we get a lot of requests for seminars on the seismic provision. So right. we're doing our seminar right now on the main spec and new manual. And, Great. and so the next new one coming out will be on the seismic. So I've heard that you were in Japan uh, after a major earthquake and that what you saw there was the inspiration for earlier versions of the of the provisions. Is that true? Yeah, partly. Um, I was lucky enough to, to be invited to go to Japan a year to the day after the Kobe earthquake. Mm -hmm. So the Kobe earthquake hit in 1995. So I was there in January 1996 and I was really struck by and I, and I was able to meet with a lot of the leading Japanese engineers and professors and talk about how they approached seismic design and they have different philosophy than we had at the time in the US and they still do to some extent but it really struck me seeing the buildings and how they performed and the kinds of things that they were doing and planning to do really kind of helped me to focus on this idea of capacity based design and how mm -hmm. important it is and how it can it sort of is a an organizing philosophy for the whole uh, set of provisions, that if we can identify where we want the, the yielding and the damage, if you will, in the structure to occur and force that into a place that we can control it and make the rest of the structure strong enough to make that happen, that we can get good performance in the buildings and we won't sort of be subject to the vagaries of the earthquake ground motion and things like that because we never know what the, the content of the ground motion is going to be like. So to try and design for one type of ground motion and get something different, you don't want your building to be sensitive to differences in, in ground motion or mm -hmm. earthquake levels. Um, you want it to be robust and, and be able to kind of take anything that can get thrown at it. And this capacity-based approach allows our buildings to do that. And is that's how Japan, is that how their building codes are? Approached? Yeah, they, they use a two-level design where they look at a very much higher force level than we were using at the time. Oh, okay. um, so, and now our code has actually kind of picked up that higher force level and a more of a capacity-based approach, yeah. When you went to Japan after the Kobe earthquake, I mean, how did their buildings perform? Generally, you know, they were pretty good. They generally are stronger than ours, and a little more conservative in many ways. It's interesting culturally because their entire country is seismic mm -hmm. country. So engineers, they all recognize that any place in the country can be subject to a very major earthquake. So everybody in the country understands some level about how important it is to, to design for earthquakes. So their buildings tend to be stronger than ours do mm -hmm. uh, in general. We try and detail ours to be ductile so that they will get some sort of similar performance. So I think generally they did well. One of the learning
thing that, that came out of that earthquake was the importance of, uh, and that base isolation did very well. That was one of the first real tests for base isolation okay. on a major scale. The Japanese have hundreds of base isolated buildings, thousands probably now. So they, they really bought into that technology and it really proved itself. One of the things, though, that was interesting is they they did have some damage to steel frames, similar to what we saw in Northridge, where some welds fractured and things like that. There was a, a lot of discussion within the steel engineering community there and the professors about how should they proceed and things. It turned out that I became quite good friends with Masayoshi Nakashima, who's actually here this week and will be uh, presenting on some of the uh, information recent that came out of last year's earthquake in Japan. He invited me in 2004. They were having a conference to the 10-year anniversary of the Kobe earthquake was coming up a couple months later. He invited me to come to Japan for a special session on steel structures, and I presented what the U.S. had done to change our practices since Northridge, which happened a year before their Kobe earthquake. And they, they had a few professors talking about what they had changed. They hadn't changed basically anything in Japan because, again, the cultural dictates say that if you change the code provisions, it implies that all the buildings that were designed before that are no good, and therefore the engineers that designed them were not smart, and so they lose faith. And I didn't understand all the cultural stuff. but uh, So I get up there and rattle on for a half an hour how we changed basically everything in the last <laughs> 10 years. And then they got into a panel discussion, and uh, luckily I had a, a young uh, faculty person who was doing his PhD at University of Texas at the time. And he was translating the panel discussion that they were having and they were arguing about why they hadn't changed and shouldn't they be changing their building codes in the future. And, you know, the U.S. Is, doesn't mind changing their codes when they learn something from earthquakes. Why don't we? This went back and forth for like an hour or so. And it was very interesting to hear the different sides of it. And their codes haven't changed, but apparently they're starting to get changes in their practices. So the engineers themselves are changing some of the things they're doing. And they had also done some things that they continue to do all the way through their designs and they, they were starting to change just before the earthquake mm -hmm. and found out that those changes that they were most recently making were the ones that were having problems. Oh, Their older way of doing things was more conservative, seemed to have worked better, so they were kind of going a little bit back to the future. It was it was very interesting for me to be there and to, to see that and to participate and he thanked me afterward because he said, you, you know, you kind of set it up for us exactly what we wanted to get into because we need to have that dialogue. Mm -hmm. And we need to recognize that we need to move forward and understand and, and uh, change the code when we have yeah. to. Yeah, I would think that would be a huge problem if you feel restrained by those type of cultural restraints that you can't change your building code. Right. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's, 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 a, it's a pretty scary thing for sure. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm told that you spend a lot of time in Hawaii. Do you need to retreat there to recover after the TC9 committee meetings? <laughs> No, not really. You know, I uh, I will say that, you know, that evening, usually I'm flying home after the meeting to get home to my family, but I'm pretty tired because when you're chairing a meeting for the whole day, you sort of have to be on the whole day. You mm -hmm. can't kind of fade out and fade in. I, I will say, though, that my committee is very focused and they're all, I'm sure they're they're putting their, themselves into it as well. But actually, I feel pretty invigorated by it afterward because, like I mentioned earlier, that I learned so much more from everybody in the group than they learned from me that, you know, I come back with all kinds of ideas and things that it, and hear things that other engineers are doing that I think are good ideas for our practice. So hopefully I can bring that in and improve what we do in my company as well. So in a lot of ways, it's, it's invigorating as well as it's a little exhausting, but, uh, <laughs> but that goes away very quickly. So. Well, good. We don't want to have to um, send you on vacation all no, the time no <laughs> to recover. What efforts are made to coordinate AISC's seismic efforts internationally? Is there an effort? Uh, yeah, there, there is. Um, the, the biggest area that we, or the closest country that we work with is Canada. Mm -hmm. We have a 
good working relationship with the Canadian group. Uh, Robert Tremblay, who's a professor in Montreal at Ecole Polytechnique, is a good friend of our committee and he's involved with TC9 on a regular basis. I can even point to an example of one of the systems, our steel plate shear wall system. It's actually first put into the, the Canadian building code and we sort of stole it uh, <laughs> and uh, modified it and you know did our updates and things. But they actually worked with developing it for their building code before we did. And they use a lot of what we do as well. They're not identical because the base uh, documents that they work with are, is different than ours. We have a good interaction with them and new developments that they have we try and incorporate and vice versa. So that's a good. We do stay fairly abreast of what goes on in the rest of the world. I, it's not nearly as close. Um, the European uh, codes, Euro codes, we have a good understanding of how they're doing things, a little different than the way we like to approach it. It's much more analytical and maybe driven more by the academic side, mm -hmm. whereas AISC really seeks to have a good balance between practicing engineers, academics, and the fabricating erecting industry. The Japanese, we also keep abreast of. They you know, obviously have a lot of input um, into how to work through seismic design. And the New Zealand codes as well. Those That's another one that we, we try and keep up to date with. The other nice thing, I think, is that AISC's code gets used by other countries around the world. Does it? Uh, yeah. I was actually asked to go to Chile a couple years ago to give my Higgins lecture. Mm -hmm. And uh, because a, the AISC code is referenced in the Chilean building code. Oh, okay. And so they, yeah, so it's used down there. So that was good. And I, I learned about how they try and implement it for their structures down there. And it's a little different as, as we would expect. Mm -hmm. But uh, it really is becoming the basis for a lot of the of work around the world. So that's kind of like gratifying that. as well. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of your Higgins lecture, you were named the T.R. Higgins Lectureship Award winner in 2010 for your paper on the seismic provisions, past, present, and future. Did you consider that a big achievement in your career? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. One of the biggest, for sure. And, and every time I gave the lecture, I really think that the award shouldn't have gone to me, but really to the committee, because <laughs> it's 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 really the committee's effort. It's not mine. Like I said, it's just a great working committee. I, I call them the hardest working committee in showbiz, because they, <laughs> they're just, we do twice as many hours a year as any of the other committees to yep. get our work done and there's a lot of stuff that goes on in between the meetings and stuff like that so they're great guys to work with and I really appreciate all the hard work that they do and the staff is great too Charlie well first it was Charlie and then uh, Cindy Duncan and now Lee Arbor and they've all been great uh, assistants and then we've got other staff people that help with our subcommittees too mm -hmm. so it really comes down to uh, to the committee first but yeah it was a it's a great recognition for the group and for the work that we've done but uh, I do think it's it's better to think of it as a, as a group uh, honor than just just for me. Well, you're very humble. I usually see you listed as James O. Malley. Uh -huh. What does the O stand for? So the O, my middle name is Owen, okay. and that has been a little bit of a bane of my existence because having the last name Malley and a middle name <laughs> O, I get confused as an O Malley all the time. Yes. Um, so that, and I, whenever I come to a conference, now AISD doesn't, it has figured it out, but many times when I go to a conference and I go to the line for the M's and they don't, they say, you're not here, and I just go, okay, I'll go over to the O's and I'm always over there. Yeah. Um, Everybody thinks you're Irish. Well, I am, but they, <laughs> they actually did. It was O'Malley when my family came from Ireland oh, back okay. in, the, in the late 1800s, but they dropped the O as many uh, people did when they came to the United States. But it's a family name. It was my grandfather's name, first name. So I gave the, my son the same middle name, so you know, he has to deal with it too. <laughs> but uh, the other interesting uh, thing there is that Ron Hamburger, who is another person that worked real closely with myself, and Steve May and the three of us were sort of the lead people on the FEMA SAC project for six 
years, and Ron and I are really great friends. Ron's middle initial is O2, and his middle name is Owen, too, which I thought was a very strange <laughs> coincidence that the two of us would have the same middle that name. That is. Yeah. So, yeah, so O is, uh, is for Owen. Okay. Yeah. My, my guess was going to be Oscar. No. <laughs> So you're a lifelong San Franciscan, mm -hmm. and your wife, Jill, is a Jersey girl. So how did the two coasts meet? Again, interesting story, Charlie, is uh, <laughs> added again here. Uh, it turns out Charlie and Jill went to the same high school. Oh, really? <laughs> uh, Jill's a little older than Charlie. But uh, yeah, we found that out in Italy at a workshop in like 96 or something like that. And we, over a glass of wine, started talking about where we, each other were from. And they said, oh, I'm from New Jersey. Oh, I'm from New Jersey. Where, which part? Oh, you never heard of it. It's a little town no one's ever heard of. Oh, try me. I'm you know, that part, too. She said, oh, Kinlon. And Charlie said, well, I went to Kinlon High School. So they, they hit it off from there. But anyway, the story about the, how we met was, so I started at Degenkolb, and it was actually a summer intern, and there was a young engineer in there named David Koch who had uh, done his undergraduate work in Virginia, at Virginia Tech. And his fiancée, Kate, was, uh, she came to San Francisco because her father was a uh, retired admiral in the Civil Engineering Corps of the Navy. And like all retired admirals of the Civil Engineering Corps of the Navy in the 1980s, he retired to get a job at Bechtel mm -hmm. Engineers uh, in San Francisco. So he got his daughter, Kate, a job in San Francisco. So David came across the country to find a job in San Francisco and landed at Degenkolb. And we became quite good friends. And a few years later, David and Kate told me that uh, Kate's roommate from college was coming to visit. And turned out her, her name was Jill. And they introduced us, and the rest is history. So. So, uh, yeah, we've been married now for, it will be 25 years in June, so. Oh, big one yeah, coming up. Yeah, so uh, it's, it's been great. And it was, again, all these things kind of fall through kind of where you end up and working in college and all that kind of stuff. Uh -huh. So it's been neat. Uh -huh. it's been neat. So you have two sons. Mm -hmm. um, are either of them following in dad's footsteps and planning to be structural engineers? They are not. Um, <laughs> and I'm, uh, you know, I'm not exactly sure why, although they may think that dad works a little too hard. But I'm, I'm not positive of that. But no, they're both great kids, and I, you know, I'm really proud of them. But, uh, it looks like they're going to be going more of my older son probably more into sports business he's going to be a going to be a swimmer in college and then my younger son he's talking about environmental science now so we'll see where that goes but uh, how old are they 21 and 19 Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah, so they're in the middle of college right now. Where are they going? My younger son is a freshman at University of Colorado at Boulder. Oh, okay. And or as many many people call it, the University of California at Boulder, because there's so <laughs> many California students there. Uh, but he loves it, and I can understand why. I don't know if you've ever yeah, been there, but I have. It's, it's a beautiful fantastic. campus. Fantastic. Yeah, and the town's great, and the the student community's great, and um, a lot of kids from his high school go there, and they all love it, and he loves it too. So he's not going to leave there. And then my <laughs> my older son, the the swimmer. Is is actually, uh, we just found out a couple of weeks ago that he's going to be going to University of Hawaii next year to, to swim oh, for, wow. for a couple of years and finish his, his degree that there. That sounds fantastic. Yeah, so uh, Jill's already joking about making sure he gets an extra room in his apartment so she can go <laughs> visit and make sure he's okay. But uh, uh, So we'll see how that goes. So what's the one thing that you know now that you wish you would have known at the beginning of your career? It's a hard one, you know. I. You know, I think it's it's got something to do with how important thinking beyond just what the basics of the standards and requirements are for mm -hmm. design, the codes, if you will, and really kind of 
jumping ahead to what you think is really going to be the actual performance of the building and keeping that mindset always sort of at the forefront to not just rely on you know being a technician but really be an engineer and think about uh, and really challenge yourself every day to, to force yourself to really understand how that building is going to perform and not just kind of fall back to oh if I do the, just what the code says it'll be faster and we'll get it done and we'll go on to the next project but really the clients are expecting more than that mm -hmm. even even though they don't really know it <laughs> yeah they don't know it but they are <laughs> but they, they definitely want more than that so I think it really behooves us to to make that happen so you've done a variety of things in your career both in design and in terms of your contributions to the profession so um, out of all those things of what are you most proud again another hard question but um, I don't think there's just one thing um, you can tell me as many as you want. Okay. Uh, <laughs> thanks. <laughs> Certainly, professionally, I think uh, the response that w you know we made after the Northridge earthquake and to uh, really tackle what happened and head on and not try and say, well, it was something funny happened and it's not going to happen again kind of a thing, but really to, to not be afraid to change the provisions and to um, to make that happen. And, to, and the, the community really came together. It was a pretty amazing thing that if you had told profess structural engineering professors that relied on doing their own research for their whole careers that they, for the next six years, were going to have to work together and share ideas and thoughts and tests and results and everything like that in a setting that then was going to get directly transferred into professional practice. People would have said, you're crazy. And we put together 50 research projects going on simultaneously for five or six years. And um, Steve Mayen, who was the, the leader of the whole SAC project, said it was like being a ringmaster for a 15-ring circus, you know. <laughs> so, But it, was, it worked out great. And I, and I think the result and the response and the change in the profession for the better has really been something that, that we're all proud of. The other things I think are, uh, we talked about earlier about my company and, and the culture and, mm -hmm. and building that up and, and uh, working with young engineers and seeing them grow in their per their careers as, as I've had the opportunity to. And, you know, my company gave me that opportunity to do all this work for FEMA and then AISC as well. So that's, that's uh, something that I'm, I'm pretty proud of too. And then finally, my clients and most especially my major client is the Department of Veterans Affairs, and I've done projects for them all over the United States, and actually we've got a project now in Puerto Rico uh, that we're working for them on, and obviously a great organization to serve, mm -hmm. and I'm really proud of the work that we've done to, to help the veterans in their facilities and make them safe in, in earthquakes. Oh yeah, I'm sure that must feel great. Yeah, it does. Well, Jim, I think those are all the questions I've got for you today. Well, great. appreciate it, Margaret. I enjoyed it and hope I didn't rattle on for too long. <laughs> you did not. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Great. Thank you. This has been a presentation by the American Institute of Steel Construction. Join us next month when my guest will be Michelle Bruneau, professor at the State University of New York at Buffalo and award-winning novelist. For more information on AISC continuing education opportunities, please visit us on the web at AISC.org seminars. And remember, there's always a solution in steel.